0: When I say that word Psalm 23, it's immediately recognizable, right? We, we recognize the sound of that. Like, oh, I know that one. Psalm 23. Other than John 3.16, it's probably the most memorized and most quoted <coughs> passage in the entire Bible. We all know it. You're going to see Psalm 23 on greeting cards. You'll see it in all kinds of artwork. You'll see it sewn into quilts, put on coffee mugs. It's all over the place. And it it causes you to ask the question, well, why is that? Why do we love this psalm so much? And the reality is, it's so simple, yet so powerful. These six verses, that's all. Six verses we're about to study. These words run deep, and they touch us deeply in our hearts. It's a powerful psalm. And I think at least in part, it's because on one level, it paints for us a picture of the type of earthly father that we wish we had. But when we realize there is no earthly father that can can live up to the standard perfect in care, perfect in provision, perfect in guidance, perfect in protection, and perfect in steadfast love, then we turn to God who is the fullness of all those things and more, and we realize He's called us sons and daughters. That Father has called us sons and daughters, and that brings us immeasurable comfort and joy, or at least should. So let's look at the text. We've already heard it once from Gabe this morning. Thank you, Gabe. But we're going to read it as well. By the way, like last Sunday, Psalm, Psalm 22, we don't know for sure when or where David wrote this, what part of his life. There's a whole bunch of possibilities. But whenever it was, wherever it was, I am glad he wrote it. Amen? Let's look at it. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. So there's so many ways to come at this psalm, but my goal this morning is to break it down into three sections. And I know that sounds kind of strange because it's only six verses. But there are three distinct sections here to be found, and I'm going to put a diagram to help you see it. If you're one of those people that likes to mark up your Bible, and I like that, Go ahead and draw a line between verses 3 and 4, and then a second line between verses 5 and 6. And you'll you see on the screen there the different things that David is addressing in each one of these seconds, sections. First of all, a pastoral declaration. Second, his confirmation of trust in the Lord. And then finally, eternal blessing. And of course, all three of those sections are connected to the central character in the entire psalm, which of course is the great shepherd. So we're going to take it one section at a time, and I think as we go through it, you're going to see the brilliance of how God worked through David in writing this amazing and beautiful Hebrew poem. Now, before we get to the shepherd himself, it's important that you see what David does right out of the gate in verse 1. It's something that most people read right past, but it sets the tone for the entire psalm. He refers to Yahweh, the Lord, as my shepherd. Underline the word my in your Bible, my shepherd, not just a shepherd, not just a shepherd over Israel or a shepherd over a collective group of people. He says my shepherd. In fact, this entire psalm, what, one of the reasons that's so powerful is it is an intensely personal psalm to David. And by extension, we as believers today, this psalm should be very, very personal to each one of us. You can check the pronouns in the psalm. There is no we or us anywhere here. It's all me and my and he and you. And you have to understand, this is an astounding thing for an ancient Israelite to speak this way. It was commonplace in Israel to speak of our God as a people. But David here writes of something that we usually only speak of in terms of a new covenant reality. This idea of a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship of God, An abiding relationship. And again, we usually look New Covenant. We think about abiding with Christ. But here is David speaking very personally about an experience with Yahweh. And what this tells us, and this is, again, something astounding, David felt the need to have a shepherd. Don't miss that. That, too, is an astounding thing for him to write. Because ancient kings in this period believed themselves to be gods. And so they would never admit that they had a need for a shepherd, but David obviously does. And that is one of the things that sets Israel apart from all of her pagan neighbors. In Israel, Yahweh was the true king. And David, although he sat on a legitimate throne, David was a servant of the true king. That was not true of the surrounding pagan neighbors. And so you have to understand, this psalm is not for people who believe they are self-sufficient. This psalm is not for people to say, I've got it figured out, I don't need help, I'm in control. This is for people who recognize that they have a great need to be shepherded. Spurgeon spoke of this in his day. He said that before a man can truly say, the Lord is my shepherd, he must first feel himself to be a sheep by nature. And that's a humbling thing. First, the man or woman has to realize and identify with the sheep in its stubbornness, in its foolishness and its dependency. And King David did that as an ancient Near East king, which is amazing. So let's press into this first section, what I call the pastoral declaration, verses 1 through 3. Now, why do I use the term pastoral? I know that in the modern era, in the church, when we hear the term pastor, the first thing that pops into our minds is a a dude. A guy, right? The preacher guy or a minister of some kind. But the root of that English word is directly connected to the idea of a pasture. A place that animals like sheep go to, to graze, to eat in a field. So the term pastor originally was used of a man who was tasked with leading sheep into an actual pasture. In other words, it's synonymous with the term shepherd. Shepherd. In fact, the only time you see in modern New Testament translations the use of the term pastor is in Ephesians 4.11, and there the Greek word is, is uh, poimen, and it means literally what? Shepherd. It's actually a better translation just to say shepherd, but in Ephesians 4.11, a lot of modern translations say pastor. And so you'll hear this type of language at Oak Hill. Our elders are pastors. They are shepherds. They're not just businessmen who make decisions. They're shepherds and our sheep this defined flock of men and women we live and we graze together do you love that image are you picturing yourself as a sheep we live and graze together in a particular pasture that is marked off and we call that pasture oak hill bible church does that make sense so this this idea of shepherding and pastoring is all over the place so in verses one through three david says here are the ways that yahweh pastors me okay and david having been a shepherd himself a, a young man who had worked in the fields and cared for sheep, he is the perfect author to describe exactly what's going on here. Now, sheep are notorious for not knowing what's best for them. That's why they need a shepherd. And as I speak about this this morning, remember we are all sheep in this pasture, even the elders, even the shepherds. We are under-shepherds, right? We are sheep as well. Don't be offended by that. We are sheep. And as hard as it might be, we have to identify with the condition of the sheep as we go along here. So I'm told that sheep won't lie down easily and relax unless certain conditions are met. I don't know any actual shepherds. Maybe when we get to Israel in November, we'll we'll interview one and ask some questions. But they won't relax if their certain conditions aren't met. If they're anxious or afraid, they will not relax. If they're thirsty or hungry and in need, they will not settle in. Or if there's friction within the flock, infighting, they will not settle in. And a good shepherd knows that and he seeks to to meet those conditions so that his sheep are healthy so what you see in verses 2 and 3 are three very specific pastoral functions that the shepherd of psalm 23 fulfills provision restoration and guidance now as we go through these things i want you to make this very personal to you to consider how god in the past has pastored you how god is pastoring you right now And I'm going to ask you some questions as we go along and even leave a little bit of time for you to consider some of the questions that get brought off the page here in Psalm 23. So look at verse 2. First of all, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet water. So that's that first one, provision. Provision. David says that a good shepherd faithfully leads his flock to places where they can rest where they can eat and drink. By the way, a good shepherd doesn't whip from behind. He leads, correct? And that's the model for elders in the church. We don't just just whip from behind. We go before the people and set the tone. We set the example. That's the way it's designed. He leads them to places they can rest and eat and drink. And here's the thing. The good shepherd knows where those places are. That's important. He knows where to take them. He's aware of the seasons. He's aware of the weather. He's aware of how those things come together to produce plentiful grass for his, for his flock, where, where those springs are in a desert. Israel is a desert, right? Where the springs are, where the sheep can come and find safe water. And then he guides them there as a professional, as an expert. He guides them there at the particular right time. Now, here's the question for you to think about. How has God done this in your life? provided for you in what ways has he provided for you is this something you think about often How has he provided are you grateful are you grateful for every little bit of provision that God has given you how have you expressed your thankfulness for the ways that he has provided for you In America, we take this for granted, don't we? Because we have it so good. Even people that say, I'm struggling, we have it good. And so sometimes we forget how God provides all the little things in life that God gives you as he pastors you. Verse 3, he restores my soul. Restoration. So grazing in those green pastures and drinking from quiet waters is designed to provide nourishment and energy for the sheep. But here's the thing. Sometimes things go wrong. Sheep get ornery. (laughs) I was waiting for somebody to chuckle. Sheep get ornery, and they disobey, and they bite, right? (laughs) And they bite, right? Sheep isn't paying attention. He wanders off, and then the good shepherd has to jump in and deal with it. The Hebrew word here for restore means to turn back or to refresh. And so David is speaking of correcting the sheep here. The sheep need to be corrected. The type of correction that brings the sheep back to a place of health and safety. So the correction is for the good of the sheep, right? We don't like that. We don't like discipline. I don't want that. But it's for the good of the sheep, for health and for safety. So much so that it can be said that the shepherd has revived or refreshed that sheep's life. That's what David is saying here. So how has God done this in your life? How has He refreshed your soul, revived you? Have you ever strayed off into the world and the Lord pursued you because you belong to Him? So He pursued you and He brought you back through correction. Has that ever happened? Are you grateful for that? Are you grateful? Have you ever found yourself spiritually dry and lifeless and the Lord refreshed you? Through his word. He brought you back to his word and it brought refreshment to your life. Or he brought somebody in the church family alongside you to refresh you in your walk so that you were no longer dry and lifeless. Has God pastored you in that way? Have you praised him for that? Are you grateful even for the discipline, for the hard times, the struggles, where you look back and go, wow, that that was a dark time, but look what the Lord has done in reviving my soul continuing in verse 3 he guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake third pastoral function guidance, the good shepherd guides his sheep down the right path the path that always leads towards truth and towards righteousness otherwise what are sheep naturally instinctively going to do they're going to wander it's what we do, don't we sing that song prone to wander, Lord I feel it We're like sheep that go astray. And they end up on paths that aren't good for them. We can all end up there. And again, the shepherd knows this, so the shepherd is always paying close attention. He's counting heads. He knows where each animal is and whether they're headed on the right path or the wrong path. How has God guided you in the past? In what ways has God guided you towards the path of truth and righteousness? He guides by His Word. We know that to be true. He guides by that Bible that's in your lap right now. The question is, how much time have you invested in studying that guidebook? Oh, but Jeff, I want wisdom. I want to be on the right path. Well, invest the time to study His guidebook. And then He guides us by His Spirit. How often do you spend time praying that the Spirit would guide you, asking for that guidance? Asking the Spirit to shape your thinking, to give you wisdom in those day to day choices that you have to make. So the shepherd wants to guide you, but he does it through the Word and through the Spirit. But that takes investment on our part, correct? So consider how God pastored David, and consider how he's pastoring you, how he's provided for you, how he's restored you, how he has guided you. These are promises that he gives to his children. If you're part of his, his eternal household, These are the promises that he's given you, that he will do these things. And then it's always a good exercise, no guilt, but to to do some good self-examination to say, how am I doing as as an obedient sheep? How am I doing as a sheep? We know how God's doing as a pastor because he'll never leave us, never forsake us. He's always by our side. How are we doing as sheep? Now notice in that last phrase in verse 3, God provides, restores, and guides for what? For his name's sake. Now, what does that mean? The good shepherd does all these things for his flock with the ultimate goal of displaying to the world his glory and his reputation. Think about this. What kind of a reputation would a shepherd in Israel have if everybody looked at his flock and said, that that flock is a mess. What kind of reputation would that shepherd have? So Yahweh intends to show the world that he is a faithful provider, a faithful guider of his flock, faithful to correct and restore and to make sure that his animals are on the paths of righteousness. So catch this now. This amazes me. God has chosen to identify his holy name with you and with me. That's an amazing thing. To some extent, his honor and reputation is bound up with our walk with him. We're ambassadors, aren't we? I mean, we read that, but do we really understand what that means? Everywhere we go, especially in a community like Santa Clarita, which is smaller than you think, we're ambassadors. His reputation, his name is on the line. When we go to that restaurant, how do we treat that waitress? At work, how do we interact with people? Do we speak with words that build up? Or do we tear down and gossip and complain? His name is bound up with us. And that can go both ways. We can display his greatness in our lives, or we can bring dishonor to his name. That comes through our attitudes, it comes through our words, it comes through our choices. And that ought to be a great motivation. One of the great prayers that you can say every single day is this, Lord, make me more obedient and holy for your name's sake. And he will answer that prayer because he cares about his namesake. Now, let me point out something I find very interesting. It seems almost like a contradiction. Yahweh wants you and I to point to his name and his reputation, and yet here's the shocking part. He's pleased to be called a shepherd In ancient Near East society, a shepherd sat on the very bottom rung of a social order. The job was known to be dirty and smelly and lonely. And who would want to identify with that? Yet the God of the universe condescends to say, that's what I want to be, a shepherd over these particular sheep. He's embraced it as a description of who he is. And so you'll see this all over the pages of Scripture. He's either referred to as a shepherd or or, or functioning as a shepherd. It comes as early in the Bible as Genesis 49. It's in all the Hebrew poetry, all over the Psalms, in the prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah. And then, of course, we find this same term being applied to God the Son in the Gospels. And in the New Testament epistles, Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Peter calls him the chief shepherd, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there's something very special and very emotional about this picture of Jesus as our shepherd, because we see in that the tenderness, right? And the intimacy and the steadfast love of our Savior. It's why in the world of archaeology, if you study archaeology, you will find one image that dominates in the early church more than any other. You'll find it in catacombs. You'll find it on walls. You'll find it on mosaics on the ground. And it's the image of Jesus with the lamb over his shoulder as our good shepherd. It is such a precious, precious image for the earliest followers of Christ. He's a shepherd. One last thing now from this first section. There is a very practical result that comes about when you have the Lord as your shepherd. Look at verse 1. Nobody likes to see this. I shall not want. That's the practical result. Now, it's easy to misunderstand what the word want means here in today's English. That statement might sound like, I shall not desire. As if, you know, we're saying that when God is your shepherd, you'll no longer desire anything anymore, but we know that's impossible as human beings. So what the translators of the psalm into English mean is this. I have all that I need that I truly need. And therefore, I don't live in a state where I have to have more. We call that what? Contentment. It's not that you're not going to desire things. That is just part of the human condition. But you can say, I truly have everything I need. If God wants to give me more, that's wonderful. But right now, he has provided everything I need. And so I don't live in this constant state of I want, want, want. What he's saying is God has supplied all those needs. And I'm just content with that. And the fact is what God's sheep have is always what the good shepherd thinks is best for them at that moment. Do we we trust his judgment in that? That he gives us exactly what we need? And in this season of life, he says, look, the things that you have right now, that's perfect for you. That's what I've given you. You just have to rest in that and say, okay, Lord, you're my shepherd, I shall not want. I know that's hard for Americans, but we have to trust his judgment. So I think it's fair to say that David is writing, I shall not want as both a declaration of where his heart is at, but listen, also a resolute decision to not want more. He's committed to it. And sometimes we just need to make that choice and say, all right, this is the promise we have in the Bible. This is truth. And therefore, I can make this decision. I have decided not to desire more than what my shepherd gives me. I am altogether satisfied with his sovereignty in my life. And that's a place we can get to with prayer, with studying his promises. But I strongly recommend you get to that place in your life. The peace and the joy that comes from that type of contentment, it's immeasurable. But that state of want is miserable. So consider that. And sadly, some professing Christians are not like this. They're not content. And oftentimes the ones who are not content... What you find when you dig a little deeper is they really haven't recognized in the first place what God has given them. They haven't seen it. They've taken it for granted, so they want more. And when it doesn't come on their timetable, they get all gripey, and what do they do? They start striking out on their own path, leaving what God has said, and going their own way. And that doesn't end well. Back in 2007, there was a, a, an author, a Canadian, by the name of Philip Keller, he wrote a book where he analyzed Psalm 23 from the perspective of an actual shepherd. He had grown up in a missionary family in Kenya. And when he was a young man, he was sent out into the field sort of like David to take care of animals. They were tenant farmers on this plain in Kenya, and he had to be, a, he had to be a, a shepherd. And so he wrote this book analyzing Psalm 23 from that perspective. Here's one of the things he writes. He says, sometimes stubborn sheep will not wait for the healthy water that the shepherd leads them to. They won't wait. They will stop to drink from the polluted potholes along the trail, contaminated with the manure and the urine of the previous flocks. He says it satisfies their thirst for the moment, but eventually it riddles them with parasites and disease. It's the price they pay for instant gratification and not following the shepherd's Guidance. That is really insightful, isn't it? Some professing Christians are like that. They just grow impatient. And so they strike out on their own and they seek out what they find out later are just polluted potholes rather than trusting the timing of the shepherd. In Jeremiah 2, Yahweh rebukes Israel for this very thing. He says, My people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves. Crack cisterns that cannot hold water. Thank you, Lord, for your provision, but you know what? It's not happening fast enough for me. I'm going to go dig my own cistern. I'll be fine. Crack cisterns that eventually hold no water. So, are you a content sheep in God's pasture right now? Are you content? Do you walk each day in The conscious conscious joy of all the spiritual riches that you actually have right now. That's really what we need, right? To walk each and every day consciously understanding all of the riches that you've been given in Christ. Or are you more prone to griping about things that you see but don't have? There's an old story about an elderly Puritan man it makes me cry every time I read it. I'm not going to, though. <laughs> one night he sat down at the dinner table with his wife, and all that was on the table was one potato and a glass of water. And he looked down at it, and then he looked up in his, the sad eyes of his wife, and with genuine gratitude said, All this, and Jesus too, Sometimes we just need to stop and realize how wealthy we we are just with Jesus and a potato. Because God meets our needs. Okay, let's move on to the second section. David's confirmation of trust. Look at verse 4. Now, you might think that this verse, verse 4, is just an extension of verses 1 through 3, but it's it's actually distinct, and here's why. Notice in verses 2 and 3, David refers to God in the third person. He says, he makes me lie down. He leads. He restores. He guides. But when we come to verse 4, David switches to the more intimate second person, and he says directly to God, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that becomes the the tone of the rest of the psalm. It switches here at verse 4. It's now becoming a directed prayer. God was talking about God, now he's talking to God. So verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil or I fear no danger, for you are with me. This is a confirmation of his trust in Yahweh. And this is the first dark note in the psalm, right? We were ju- you're like, oh, we were just at green pastures and quiet waters, yay. Paths of righteousness. But now we're at shadows and dark valleys. And that's a very important lesson for us. As believers, When you follow the Lord as your shepherd, there are going to be times where he is going to lead you through dark places, through dark valleys. Listen, there's, there's no opting out of hardship or even evil in this world because, well, one day I accepted Jesus. So now I get a get out of jail free card, right? I just go around all these things. No, no. For an ancient shepherd, this was all part of his job oftentimes he'd have to when he was leading sheep to to a better feeding place they would have to first go through a canyon to get there and the reality is is in the canyons in israel what they call wadis that's actually where the best water sources are where water flows so sometimes they're going to get up to a pasture they're going to go through the dark valley first because there's water for the sheep so that was a normal part of life in fact when we go to israel we go to a place like this. This is called the Wilderness of Zin. And we hike through this canyon. And you begin to feel what a dark valley feels like in Israel. Those, those cliffs on both sides are super steep and imposing. But guess what? You can barely see it. But in the picture on the left, there's a water source there as well. That's what the picture that David is drawing here. Sometimes you go through these wadis, these valleys, and there's danger there. Yes, there's danger And the picture that David is drawing here is if it were not for the presence of the shepherd, those sheep would be in grave danger, potentially losing their lives. So now we can add another pastoral function here, protection. Right? So we got provision, restoration, guidance, and now protection. Verse 4 continues, your rod and your staff, the rod was, was like a short club that a shepherd would wear in his belt. He could pull that out and use it Uh, In defense, fight off a predator. You want a nice little short club that you can swing easily. And the staff was the tall walking stick, probably had a crook on the end of it so it could grab an animal, control an animal, even pull a sheep to himself if necessary. And so what's interesting is David says the fact that the shepherd has those tools is a great comfort. And he knew that sometimes that walking stick with the crook, that was for correcting him. So David said, it's a comfort to know that my shepherd, my God, will both protect me but also correct me. We like the first one, not so much the second one. But David found comfort in that. Some people might prefer or even demand that God should just, just, you know what, take us around the valley. Let's just go around it. It's safer that way. But that's not not how God operates. God has never promised his children to remove us from the evil of the world. We are, we are you know, sojourners in this wicked place, right? We have got to go through the dark things. But he pledges to walk with us through those valleys. That's the difference, right? It doesn't eliminate the evil. It eliminates what? The fear of evil. Because he's promised us his presence. That's why David can say, man, i got to walk through these valleys. And David walked through a lot of hard times. But if the presence of God is with me, I don't have to fear anything. Do you you really trust, as he did, the confirmation of trust, do you trust that God is powerful enough to protect you exactly as he sees fit, that he's good? David lived in the shadow of danger all the time, so much more than us, all the time, right? Remember when he was young, he had to fight off lions. Anybody done that? Uh, Anybody battled like a nine-foot giant? with a slingshot right anybody led armies in a battlefield over and over again and get victory after victory not us anybody sit on a throne and have people plot against him all the time trying to take his throne away david went through so many dark valleys way more than us but like we looked at last week when when david was saying lord why have you forsaken me and then the and then the psalm switches David knew that as long as he knew that he had not been forsaken by God and that God was with him, he could endure anything. Anything. And that's where we need to be. We can endure anything with him because it's in the valleys. It's in, listen, let's be honest. It's in the valleys when we really draw closer to God. When we have to. This, this might be the secret to crack the code of why David changes the pronouns here. Because listen, we are more prone to talk about God in the third person when we're in a green pasture. Right? When things are good, we'll go, hey, let me tell you about my God. He's great. Look at this pasture I'm in. But when we go into the dark valley, now we talk to God. (laughs) Right? We cry out to him because we need him. Isn't that interesting? That's human nature. I'll talk about God. Oh, he's amazing. Woo! Praise the Lord. Throw my hands up. Everything's great. Oh, I'm in a dark valley. Lord. Lord, I'm in need here. <laughs> See, the real danger for us as Americans who have it so good is that as long as we're consistently hanging out in green pastures, we're tempted to forget God. We're really satisfied with this amazing grass. This is really good. Lord, thank you. Hmm. And we forget about the shepherd. But in the dark valley, We have that that need. One author puts it this way. In the dark, we cling to God's leg like a child. Don't leave me. But when we're in the green pasture, we just wander all over the place. So God sometimes says, we're going into a dark valley, but I'm with you. I'm with you. So do you trust that God is with you? In the midst of whatever trial you're going through right now, do you believe that God has not forsaken you and he's not left your side? And that he is teaching you and growing you and stretching your faith in the midst of this. Do you believe that? Or are you prone to let fear overtake your heart? Do you turn to prayer or do you jump to worry? Do you turn to prayer or do you jump straight to worry? One final observation from this important verse, right? We love this verse. Verse 4, when you're looking at the switch and the pronouns of verse 4, I learned this, John Piper once wrote this in a book. He said, the lesson I've learned from this is that it's good not to talk very long about God without talking to God. Psalm 23 teaches me to interweave my theology with prayer. And he goes on to give some examples. He says, so not far behind the theological statement, God is generous, should come from me. Thank you, Lord, for your generosity to me. Makes sense. Or on the heels of God as glorious should come for me. Lord, I adore your glory. Show me more of it. So we, we take statements about God and we turn them into prayers to God. I think that's really interesting. I like that picture. All right, look at verse 5. You want some really good news? Somebody said yes. Thank you. No, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need good news. Verse 5. Again, back to the you, right? David's speaking directly to God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. See, when we read Psalm 23, we get so wrapped up in the shepherd imagery that we miss this important aspect. This is so great. This is Yahweh as the omnipotent, all-powerful vanquisher of his enemies. Christ the victor in this particular verse. The Lord assures David and us by extension that his enemies will never prevail over us. Man, that's good news. In a world that feels so unjust right now, we know that the enemies of God will never prevail. Our victory in Christ is so complete that he is going to spread this lavish banquet table before us and say, come enjoy. Enemies, I got that. You come and enjoy at my table. He's more than a good shepherd. He's a host. He spares no expense for those that he invites. And you have to, again, you have to understand the context. In the ancient Near East, sharing a meal at somebody's table in their house had spiritual implications to it. When you sat down and you ate and drank with somebody, it was a forging of a bond of of relationship and loyalty. Sometimes families would seal covenants at meals like this. So by describing this banquet, David is saying, Christians, look how blessed we are to have received an invitation to the king's table. But here's the best part about it. The real key to this is we eat this in the presence of our enemies. What? Hold on a second. Wait. The walls are closing in. Our enemies are winning. And and God says, don't worry about it. Come eat. That's amazing. So this is an extension of that. I'm with you in the valley of the shadow of death. I know it looks scary, but I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. In fact, even as your enemies are coming in, the the, the lions and the wolves are coming in, he's like, just come to the table. Come to the table. I'll handle your enemies. I'll hold them back. You are safe and secure with me. So not only does he protect, but he actually blesses you and I in the middle of the threats from the world. Again, it doesn't mean that sometimes bad things aren't going to happen, hard things, but he is blessing you even though you're going to be threatened on all sides. Though my enemies threaten and harass me, I get to break bread with a king of kings and lord of lords. I can feast with him in peace and security. And so that's why David says, my cup overflows. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. You're just lavish, Lord. So honest question, do you trust God that much? Is your, is your trust level that, that much that even when it feels like the world is closing in on you, you can still sit down at your kitchen table, wake up in the morning in peace and security because you know God is the omnipotent vanquisher of his enemies. That's the promise we have. All right, time for the third and final section. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is the biggest shift in the entire psalm because we're going where? To eternal blessing. From present pastoring of the good shepherd to eternal blessing of being found in him. Verse six, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The implication here is that even though David has gone through all kinds of trouble and conflict and despair, his experience with Yahweh up to this point in his life has been filled with what? Goodness and unfailing love. And then he implies that, look, because God never changes, I have every expectation that that will continue to be the case. Again, not that I'm going to be spared all kinds of trouble. I I still got to go through things. But I know that all the days that I'm on this earth, God's goodness and his loving kindness, his steadfast love, cares for me and takes care of me. His presence is with me until the day God calls me home. And then it gets only better. Right? I mean, that's the hope we have. It gets even better that I will dwell eternally in the house of the Lord, having nonstop communion and fellowship with the God of the universe. How do we lose in this? We don't. Just as God is the victor, we're the victors in Christ, through Christ. This is amazing stuff. For every believer, ultimately, it's always about being in the presence of our Father. Wherever He is, that's where we want to be. Right? Forever sheep in his flock, forever children in his household, forever and ever, amen. We're always going to be a part of his fold. This is the way Spurgeon put it in his day. He said, While I am here on the earth, I will be a child at home with my God. The whole world shall be his house to me. I love that. And when I ascend into the upper chamber, I shall not change my company, nor even change the house. I shall only go to dwell in the upper story of the house of the Lord forever. If only we could live day to day with that mindset that all the world is God's house. But someday we graduate to the upper level. I'm getting close. My my wife just panicked. (laughs) Time to wrap up. All right. Maybe you've noticed every single Sunday in the Psalms, I've started by saying, well, this psalm is this type of psalm or in a particular category. What about Psalm 23? It's actually really hard to categorize. You'll find a little bit of praise in there. You'll find some wisdom. You'll find thanksgiving. But clearly, it's a messianic psalm, isn't it? Because it's pointing forward to who? who? Who is the shepherd that David speaks of? Right? A thousand years before he's born in Bethlehem. Who does David speak of? I know we recently finished the Gospel of John, but I, I can't not read from John 10. And so here's what I'm going to do. You don't have to turn there. I'm not even going to put it on the screen. You can just listen. Just, just listen. Let the words soak in and make the connection between Psalm 23 and the Gospel of John. Jesus says to his friends, truly I tell you, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way, that's a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. Do you know the voice of Jesus? I am the good shepherd, he says. I am the good shepherd of Psalm 23. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also, and they, that's us, Gentiles, they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's it. There's one shepherd. 3,000 years after David lived, And now under the new covenant, we can read Psalm 23 and say, yep, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads me to green pastures. He's the one who leads me beside still waters. Jesus is the one who restores my soul. He's the one who guides me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's Jesus who walks with me through the dark valleys of life. And ultimately, it's Jesus who gives me victory over my enemies. He gives me victory over sin and slavery and death. He gives me the victory. Because at the cross, he paid my debt for sin, right? And death itself was swallowed up in victory. It's Jesus. So enjoy Psalm 23. Enjoy all the feels that it brings to you, right? But don't forget to see Jesus here. He is the good shepherd. So trust him. Trust Jesus for your provision. Trust Jesus that He will restore you and correct you. Trust that Jesus will guide you on a path of righteousness and know that in the midst of your trial, He will never leave your side. Never. So do not fear. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life if you know the Lord. If you're found in Christ this morning, God's goodness, God's steadfast love will follow you all the days of your life and then someday you get to graduate to the upper floor and you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23. Let's bow our heads. As I pray through the psalm, I, again, want, to, I want you to make this personal. I mean, if you, if you agree with what I'm praying, pray it for yourself. Lord, this morning I I say with David you are my shepherd and I am thankful to be your sheep thank you for the ways you've provided for me and Lord if I've taken it for granted correct me thank you Lord for how you restore me when I start to get wobbly Lord you bring me back when I start to get Dry in my walk with you, Lord, you come to me. I praise you, Lord, for the guidance of the the spirit that works through your word to transform my heart and to transform my deeds. Lord, I want to be more and more content with the spiritual blessings that you have given me. Make me a content man with exactly what you've given me because I know if it comes from you, it's good. It's what I want. Lord, help me to trust you more and more in the midst of the trouble and trials of this this crazy world that we are all struggling to understand right now. In the dark valleys, Lord, be by my side. Let me know that you're with me. Lord, prevent me from falling into fear. Lord, keep worry far from me. Help me to trust more and more. And God, I praise you this morning that I have an invitation to your banquet table, that I will someday for all eternity sit down at the table of the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, thank you for your promises this morning. Seal these things to our hearts. And may we worship you now with pure lips. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.